On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we're looking at various listener questions. We always like this kind of program, Jacob, where we take a number of questions that listeners have sent in over the last several weeks, and we kind of combine them all together. We have always have a really good discussion. We want your participation if you're listening, so join in with us as we talk about some questions submitted by our listeners. Uh, lots of questions, lots of different st- kinds of questions. It's going to be an interesting program. We're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and we welcome you into the virtual bible study for thursday august 16th 2018 my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is back tonight dad welcome back to the program great to be here glad Glad to have you here we missed having you and uh, kyle's back behind the controls kyle welcome back that's good to be with you glad to have you and welcome to you on the other end of the line tonight. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com, or in the chat room tonight. And it's not too late for you to submit a question. We might be able to sneak one more in the discussion tonight. If we can't get it tonight, we can put it in on a future edition of the program. So send in your questions or on uh, any Bible subject to questions at collegeview.com, or if you have comments about what we're going to talk about tonight and during the program the chat room is the best way for your comments to be heard there, or actually the best way is on the phone. It's toll-free, and the line is open. And remember that we uh, always have an open-door policy here. If you don't, if you disagree especially, we'd love to, to, to hear what you have to say, and, and uh, we will treat you kindly. If you don't want to come on, uh, ask your preacher to come on, and we'll be glad to talk with him about things that that we may probably disagree about, but we'll talk about them kindly. We do, and uh, we need some more of those interviews. Uh, Those discussions are very beneficial for all involved, and so we need some more of those discussions. If you'd be willing to help us with that, uh, reach out to us on email. All right, well, you've got five uh, different questions tonight, uh, and uh, they are very interesting. Um, and uh, look forward to, to hearing what our listeners have to think about that as uh, we look at uh, questions our listeners have submitted. All right. So the first of our questions, two, the first two, we got five that we want to try to cover tonight, but the first two deal with instrumental music. Okay. Of course, uh, we understand that the fact that we do not use instrumental music in the worship of God sets us apart from a majority of the religious world. We understand that. Uh we always try to point out that the reason we do this is not because we of some personal preference we have. You know, it's not that we just happen to like a cappella singing. We don't like instrumental music, and therefore we're going to sing a cappella and we're going to not use instrument. It's not a matter of personal preference. Uh, it's a question of what's authorized in the Word of God. And so our our understanding of the Scriptures, if we're wrong, tell us so, show us why. But our understanding of the Scriptures is that in the New Testament, we're to do everything in an authorized fashion, and the kind of music that is authorized in New Testament worship is instrumental is not instrumental music. It's uh, singing without instrumental accompaniment, often called a cappella. 
It's interesting if you do a study of the of that expression a cappella comes from Latin and actually literally means as in the church yeah. or as in the chapel. Uh and so the, the the very expression denotes that it was common in the past to just sing without instrumental And that's documentable in history. That's right. That, that uh, the early church did not use instruments in worship. Exactly right. Now well, that's a Greek word, right? I think that's Latin. A cappella comes from it comes from the Latin. Uh, but now the Greek or- Orthodox Church, they still don't, don't use, have instruments. Well, I think maybe some do now, but primarily they have they have not used the instrument uh, with an understanding of the language. That's right. They they would have been the ones who understood the language, and they they did not employ instrumental music. Okay. So it's interesting. Right. So here's the first question we had. This is from a listener named David. He said, I know the verses in Colossians and Ephesians to say, say sing and make melody. Actually, the one he's thinking of that says that is Ephesians 5, verse 9. Let's read those two verses. The first one. Yeah, we need to set the groundwork here because some listeners may not have listened to our programs on uh, our position on music and worship. Uh, so the groundwork here is that these two passages, along with other passages in the New Testament, are there are about mention, eight verses in the New Testament that mention music. They mention music, but they're all exclusively vocal, vocal music. music. Vocal music, singing. Okay. Uh, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Okay. That's Colossians three sixteen, and then in Ephesians five verse nineteen. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay. So David says, I know from these verses in Colossians and Ephesians, they say, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. I have no trouble with that. But my question is, can't you still sing and make melody in your heart if someone in the background is playing a guitar or a piano you're still not violating the command to sing. Well, that's right. You are still singing, but there's something else going on in addition to that. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of the best way to, to answer that. Now, now, first of all, as I understand the grammar of Ephesians 5.19, whatever it says to do, it is for everyone to do. So everyone is to sing and make melody in their heart. Sometimes we hear... The argument that make melody, and I'm reading the King James Version, make melody is from the Greek word solo, P-S-A-L-L-O, solo. And the argument is posed that that word was understood to include instrumental accompaniment with the singing. Now, it's interesting that all church historians agree that the earliest Christians did not use instrumental music. You you would think that if that expression mandated or even authorized or included it, that they would have used it in there. Because it's interesting that the Jews in their temples worship did use instruments. Mm-hmm. But there was a distinct break when these became Christians and they did not use instruments in their worship. So the earliest Christians did not. All church historians agree with that. Uh, as you said, when the Greek Orthodox Church split off from the Roman Church, somewhere in the uh, 700s probably, they were the Greek Orthodox Church. In other words, they knew Greek. They didn't use instrumental music. Today, there have been dozens of English translations of the New Testament made 
and not a single one of them translates solo to mean sing with instrumental accompaniment. So all through the centuries, from the very first century until now, nobody who knew the Greek language believed strongly that solo meant to sing with instrumental accompaniment. The make the solo, the making melody, it takes place in our heart, not on an external instrument of some kind. Uh, and so, uh, I need to sing. I need to make melody in my heart. That that and that's commanded of everybody. And there's no authority in that for playing instruments in accompaniment. Now, what if somebody? I think David's question is somebody sitting over here in the corner, and he's playing he's playing a guitar. Yeah. Does that make me not be worshiping? As I should. Well, actually, that's what happens every time instrumental music is used in a worship service. Somebody's sitting over there playing an organ, or maybe two or three guys are over there playing guitars and other stringed instruments. I, I think that's very common in, in in worship services where they use instruments. There be a few, one or a few, playing while others are singing. Uh, and he's saying, "Would I?" The question is. Aren't you, you're still you. If you're not the one playing the instrument, you are not violating the command to sing. Now, that's his point. Uh, it's a little weird the way that the question is posed, but I think I would, I would be in error because I would be fellowshipping a practice there that is not authorized. That's going to go into some of the other questions we have tonight as well, and I think that, that idea of fellowship is that this is a, this is a time, a joint worship service together. We're all worshiping it's God collective. together. It's collective. What we do, we're doing together. It's what we would call fellowship. And um, and so I don't want to be in, have fellowship with a, an unauthorized activity. So think about it this way. There's a guy over in the corner frying catfish while we're singing in the worship. I'm still singing. So is it okay for him to be frying catfish over there while I'm singing? No, I think we'd all say, hey, this is not the place for you to be frying catfish. That's not that's not what we do here. That's not what we're about. Stop stop frying the catfish. That's not appropriate. We talked we talked yeah. last week about the aerialists, the yeah. scantily clad women hanging from the ceilings, flipping around on ropes, doing what the preacher admitted were circus acts. And he said that there's other foolery going on. They're going to get used to this foolery. Can I sit there and sing while she's hanging scantily clad from the ceiling? And well, I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. No, I'm I'm not going to have fellowship with that. I'm not yeah, going to associate yeah. with. That. I, I think that's the way I would approach that. It's a little different way to ask the question, but actually, I am singing. If I'm singing in conjunction with the guy who's playing the guitar, in conjunction with the person who's playing the piano. In other words, there's a cooperative effort going on here. It's not like the it's not like the guitar player or the organ player over there playing some completely unrelated tune no it's a coordinated you do have fellowship it's a coordinated activity and so i am participating in singing with instrumental accompaniment all right uh, to the question tonight Stephen said to answer david's question about the verses in ephesians and colossians i direct our thoughts back to nadab and abihu if god had simply said to offer the incense at the altar without instruction as to where the fire was to come from then the two sons of aaron would not have been under the under judgment and died but in the in this case God did stipulate where the fire was to be procured. Exodus or Leviticus 16 verses 12 through 13 describe where the fire was to be found for the burning of incense, lest you die 
in quotations, if the in the epistles we were instructed where the melody was to come from, not a lifeless instrument, see 1 Corinthians 13, 7, but from human heartstrings. Melody means to pluck. It is the heartstrings that would be played because that is what is specified. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Yeah. Uh, all of us are to sing and make melody in the heart, including the guy over there who's on the key, on the keyboard, uh, he has, doesn't have any authority to be making melody on the keyboard. All of us are to be making melody in the heart. Kent in Calhoun, Georgia. One of these days we need to have Kent on the phone rather than just an email tonight. But he says one uh, does not find authority in the New Testament for the usage of mechanical instruments, uh, instrumental music to accompany singing. One may indeed uh, sing with instrumental music in the background. Such would not be the type of music that is authorized in the scriptures. The addition of mechanical instrumental music or background music changes or contaminates what God has authorized. That would be parallel to adding an unauthorized element to the Lord's Supper, which would also be sinful. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ken. Now, I mean, I think we all understand this. A, a few years ago, several years ago now, I guess it was, there was a program on TV. Uh, we watched it a little bit. We haven't had TV for a number of years, so it's got to be back there several years ago. But it was a singing competition. Groups sang, but it was all a cappella without musical accompaniment. And so it was, it was just, you know, the, uh, diff- different groups had different numbers of people, but they all sang without instruments. They understood the rules of the contest. It was a contest. They were a process of elimination, and they finally awarded a winner to this competition. So one group has a guy over on the side playing the guitar. Would they have been disqualified from that competition? They would have been, wouldn't they? Because they would not have been singing only. They would have been singing with instrumental accompaniment. And that's not the rules of that program. That wasn't, that wasn't the rules of that contest. They would have been disqualified. They were still singing, but they weren't just singing. They were singing with instrumental accompaniment. And that would have disqualified them under the rules of that program. Everybody would, everybody could see that. Anybody would agree to that. In the same fashion, if I'm singing and there's somebody over here playing an instrument, then I am singing with instrumental accompaniment, and that's not authorized. It's different than just singing. All right, we're going to get a break. When we get back, we've got some questions from Mike along the same lines. First up, Mike's at, Mike asks, can you use a pitch pipe to start the songs? Is that violation we'll now mike that. thinks that instrumental music is okay but he says why would you say that that's wrong and then an interesting question he says if you tell your wife that i'd like a steak for my birthday dinner and she fixes you a steak a baked potato dinner rolls and your favorite pie for dessert are you going to divorce her did she not do what you said you wanted does that mean god said you could sing but it'd be all right to throw some instruments in there too he'd be okay with that What about that? Are these parallels? We're going to get to that. We'll get your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Misconception number 34. The folks at the College View Church of Christ think you have to go to their church to go to heaven. Everyone else goes to hell. You may have heard this, but it's simply not true. We probably believe the same thing you do. We definitely believe the same thing Jesus did in Matthew 7:21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter to heaven, but those who do the will of my Father will. You may have been misled about us. Why not come learn the truth about the College of Church of Christ this Sunday at 9.30 a.m.? Remember, the truth will set you free. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The question in life is not whether you get knocked down. You will. The question is, are you ready to get back up? William Penn said, I expect to pass through this world but once. 
any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness or abilities that I can show to any fellow creature, let me do it now. Let me not defer it nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Man, wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. We're back on the program tonight as we talk about various listener questions. Talking about instrumental music now, a couple questions from David and now one from Mike. Um, Let's start with the first one. Yeah, start with the first one. All right. He says, so from Mike, the question is, some more conservative brothers argue that using a pitch pipe to establish a starting note of a song is wrong because it's an addition. It's not just singing. And because if we're focused on the notes and how we sound, then our worship is in vain and therefore unacceptable. Do you agree with that view? I would. My answer to the first question is, no, I don't agree with that view. He says, if not, why not? Well, when when a, a note is sounded on a pitch pipe, that is not singing with instrumental accompaniment. That is just an aid to get us singing together on the same key, in the same key, and, and the song leader is leading to set us at the same tempo. It's, it's, it's to facilitate the singing. It's to facilitate decency and an order. But it does not change the act of worship. Now, if the guy with the pitch pipe, a lot of, maybe some of our listeners don't even know what a pitch pipe is, but it's usually a round thing and you blow on it, it has reeds in it that sound the various notes of, of, uh, uh, of the keyboard. I mean, if you had a keyboard, they'd be laid out flat. A pitch pipe is usually round. Now, a lot of the song leaders have their pitch pipes on their smartphones. But typically, you just listen to one note. The song, and many times, it's only audible to the song leader. Uh, and I think that's good if you can do that. So he, he used to be years ago. There's not very, I've seen one just recently, but not very many of them used to be tuning forks yeah. and the song leader would hit the tuning fork and he, he, he would listen. He's the only one who could hear it. And then he'd start the song. It, it's just an aid to get the song leader to help us all start on the same pitch. Mm-hmm. It does not change the act of worship whatsoever. Uh, uh, to the question of uh, uh, if we're focused on the notes and how we sound, our worship is in vain, not except. Well, I don't think we should just be focused on the notes. We certainly got to sing from the heart. First Corinthians 14, Paul said we should sing with the understanding. Uh, so we, we need to focus on what we're saying, what we're singing. Uh, but it certainly facilitates the accomplishment of the singing to all be on the same key and not just have a bunch of different people singing different melodies at different rates at different in other words different pitch different tempo different words no we want we want to all be singing in, in unison and this just accommodates that it does, but it's still the act of singing it's has, the act has not changed now here's an interesting thing if someone in the congregation said you know what i got a problem with you using that pitch pipe when you get up there i don't think that's authorized you know what we'd do We'd quit using it. We'd quit using the pitch pipe because it's a liberty. Yeah. Now, Mike, on the other hand, says, you don't use instruments. You guys are wrong. I'm not going to associate. I'm going to demand that we have instruments. For crying out loud, we're going to have the piano. We're bringing in the organ. I don't care if you guys got a problem with it. We're going to uh, have well, the instruments. Uh, well, you may be putting words into Mike's no, I'm mouth. Not, but people, if, if, uh, if Mike was of that mindset, no, no, I'm sorry, I don't some, want to say about Mike. But some people pe- are. But people are. I mean, this whole issue. Why? It's 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 divisive. Well, if it's if it's not it's not commanded, they have to give us that, right? Yeah. They want to bring in something that's not commanded, and people have a problem with it. 
Why don't we just say, okay, if we've got a problem with it, it's, it's obviously God's not mandating that we have to have the instrument. You're going to bring it in to make an issue out of it. Well, then shame on you. I agree with that, but I actually think that, that the argument against it is much stronger than that. Because oh, the, it is. I mean, it, I'm just saying uh, we're, the, we're, we'd be willing to yield on the pitch pipe. But are you willing to yield on, on, on the, the instrument? instrument. Yeah. Right, right, right. All right, now. Now, this second question really intrigued me. I got it. Mike, I, I give you credit. I think this is an intriguing way it's to... It's a beautiful question. It's a great way to pose the question. He says, if your wife asked you what you wanted for dinner for your birthday, and you said, I'd love a steak, but she presented you with a steak, a baked potato, dinner rolls, and your favorite pie for dessert, would you divorce her? He said, hopefully that second question made you chuckle, at least. It did. But I think it's I think it's interestingly uh, worded and a uh, the, the concept is posed in a challenging way. Now, to start with, understand that analogies don't prove anything. You know, I, 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 analogies can help illustrate a point, but analogies in and of themselves don't prove anything one way or the other. And so this analogy, though very interesting, I, I, it intrigues me. It doesn't, it doesn't prove one thing or another. Now, as I thought about that, I think the, my response to this is my relationship with my wife is not at all like my relationship with my God. My God is a sovereign king. My wife and I have a, a husband-wife relationship. I, I hope I'm the head of my family. But God, as king, has said, Colossians 3.17, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what God has said, I want you to have authority for every single thing you do. I don't, I don't operate that same way with my wife. My wife has lots of discretion. She's able to do a number of things at her own initiative. Uh, and so, no, I wouldn't get mad at her for adding to my request for steak because I... We have that kind of relationship. But but my relationship with God is not the same as that because God has specifically said, don't do anything without my authority. He's a sovereign king. i got to do what he says. And I am not at liberty to add to or to take from anything that he tells me to do. I would uh, approach it this way as well. Let's say it's your wife and she wants the steak. Or she wants, she asked for something for her birthday. If my wife said, I want a steak for my birthday, I would know the restaurant that she wants to go to. I would know what kind of dressing she wants on the salad. I would know what kind of, what she would want the, on top of the potato. I would know what kind of pie she would want. Why is that? Because she's told you. She's probably. told me. Yeah. Right? I, I don't have to, I, I and, and same, so Mike, you tell your wife you want a steak. She knows what your favorite pie is. She knows what and, you like with your pie. And she knows, because you've talked about in the past, that you really love a baked potato with your steak. Now, how do you with gonna, butter and sour cream. How are you going to do that with God? How do you know that how he likes How would you know the, the mind of God? That's right. Unless he revealed it to you. Unless he revealed it to you. And his thoughts are not your thoughts, Mike. His ways are not your ways. In fact, his ways are higher than your ways. They're as high as the heaven is from the earth. And so... 
I can't say, you know, God said to sing. I think he'd be happy with this, with the, a piano. There's an assumption there. You're assuming that he'd like it, and you don't know because he didn't say he'd like it. He might actually hate it, uh, you know. And So how would you know? In other words, my wife knows that I love a baked potato with a steak. She knows I love dinner rolls. She knows I love pie. She knows that because I've revealed that to her yeah. over many years. She knows that you, what kind of pie not to come at you with. Yeah. yeah don't yeah. drink, don't, I don't, well, that coconut pie, you can keep that. Yeah. Don't put that out but, there but for my birthday. I think you're making a really good point. The reason she knows that is because I've revealed that to her. Right. Many different ways over many years. But God has not revealed to us that he prefers or would like us to add instrumental music to our worship. And so there's an assumption that, that that would be presumptuous on our part to to act where God has not revealed. There's kind of an interesting story in the life of King David in Second Samuel chapter seven. In Second Samuel chapter seven, uh, the king says, verse two, he says to Nathan the prophet, "See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains." And Nathan said to the king, "Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee." Uh, so David said, that doesn't seem right. I'm living in a really fine house and, and God is still worshiped in a tent. I think maybe I should build a temple. Nathan said, yeah, and, and Nathan, sounds reasonable. Go and, for and, it. And Nathan, without consulting God said, yeah, absolutely. That makes yes, sense to me. Yeah. I think he would like, I think God would like that. Yeah. Uh, and it came to pass that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go tell my servant, David, and thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? You see the reaction David? Here's David. I mean, David, man after God's own heart. And Nathan, the prophet, a very, very great guy. And they both had the, the purest of intentions. Yeah, and but they assumed that they could speak for God. God would like this. God would like it if we made him a house of cedar. And God basically said, when did I ever say that? I never said that. And, and so uh, the idea that presuming that God would like it, was they were wrong about that. And we would be pr- wrong to presume that God would prefer anything in worship that he hasn't told us about. You reference second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The only way we know what God wants is in his word. Yeah, And we know how he's told us in the New Testament to worship him is with singing. That would exclude any other form of worship uh, that we might dream up. Yeah, because we don't know anything about God. We don't know anything about God except what He's told us. Aerialist, fireworks, whatever it may be, we only know that God wants us to worship Him with singing and vocal uh, music in worship today. All right, Mike goes on. Now, but wait, one more thing. Okay, okay, okay. I like this question because Mike. Yields the point here that s- instrumental music is not instructed. In the uh, New that, that's interesting because he he actually, by the way he worded that, acknowledged that it's not. In it's the an addition. It's a, it to would what be the adding teach. to what God said to do. Just yeah, okay. I think good point. 
He goes on. He says, the illustration of the child sent to do grocery shopping is often used to illustrate how adding to or taking away from is wrong. But the illustration above shows that some things go together. In other words, steak, baked potato, dinner rolls, they go together. Pie, yeah. he, says, so he, he says, my illustration, he says, the illustration he offered shows that some things go together. He says, I believe many Christians throughout history believe that singing and instrumental music just went together. Just as a building facilitates meeting, instruments facilitate singing, they go hand in hand. Actually, Mike is just absolutely wrong to say that Christians have always assumed that singing and instruments go together. Let me read you a few quotes. Now, Christians today might, because they've just But he says Christians throughout history. Right, but Christians today might just assume, without going to the scriptures, that singing and instruments... I just want to point out historically that Christians throughout history have not thought so. Uh, A man named Dickinson said... We know that instruments performed an important function in the Hebrew temple service and in the ceremonies of the Greeks. At this point, however, a break was made with all previous practice, and although the lyre and flute were sometimes employed by Greek converts, as a general rule, the use of instruments in worship were condemned. Many of the church fathers, speaking of religious song, make no mention of instruments. Others, like Clement of Alexandria and St. Chrysostom, refer to them only to denounce them. Uh, That's in a a book called Instrumental Music and Worship by M.C. Curfees. Lars Qualbin, in A History of the Christian Church, said singing formed an essential part of the Christian worship, but it was in unison and without musical accompaniment. George Klingman, in Church History for Busy People, says the earliest reference to the use of the flute and the harp is in the second century. At Alexandria, Clement forbade the use of the flute on the ground that it was too worldly. Ambrose is said to have introduced instrumental music in the West in the 4th century. So it was hundreds of years after the church began. All historians agree that the earliest Christians did not use instruments. And, and they, the instruments were generally opposed initially. And then they finally wore down the resistance. But it has not been the case that throughout history, Christians have thought that Singing and instruments go together. That's a that's a false argument, and uh, some a- analysis of the history proves that that's not true. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven questions at collegeview dot com. And if we're going to justify things just based upon the, the maybe the free association that goes with certain things, music today for a lot of people includes light shows, smoke machines. Well, they're doing that in churches. Is that is it okay? It also includes some immoral activities. Is that are we to bring that in because we can bring in music and well, music? I think they would say obviously not. But you know, you, you got to be careful by saying what has always seemed to go together. If you're using that as your justification, a lot you, of people you, have. In other words, the, the old statement is what proves too much proves nothing at all. A lot of people are having problems with the stuff that the music is bringing into the worship today. Yeah. Are we? Are we, where do you draw the line if you say, well, you can't do that? Where do you draw the line? Yeah. Okay. So let's take a break. Mike's got a couple more points. We're going to have to move quickly when we come back from this break. It's a break. It is. All right. We're going to get a break. We'll get your thoughts uh, during the break and afterwards. Uh, don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. A familiar expression describes something that, quote, sticks out like a sore thumb. The origin of that phrase is easily understood by anyone who ever had one. Everything you do, everywhere you go, the sore thumb seems to be the first thing that gets hit, smashed, jabbed, or pinched. It really sticks out. 
Sometimes we develop a spiritual sore thumb. We get upset or agitated at someone or something. It could be the preacher, the elders, or any member of the church. It might be a lesson that was taught, a sermon that was preached, or just something said in casual conversation. Very often, though, it relates to some problem in our own life that we haven't dealt with and are feeling guilty about. Whatever the case, this sore thumb tends to stick out, and when it does, we're extra sensitive. Everything that is said and everything that is done seems to be directed toward us. We imagine that the preacher is preaching right at us, or that the lesson was intended only for our ears. We take offense at the slightest things, things that are more imagined than real. You see, the problem is with us. Our sore thumb is sticking out. The best way to deal with this problem is to attack it at the source. If we really think that someone has wronged us or slighted us, we need to go to them. Matthew 18, verse 15. When we do this, we most often find that there has been a simple misunderstanding. Where real differences do exist, this approach will help find a speedy reconciliation. However, if the real problem is our own guilty conscience, we need to repent and get past it. Sore thumbs need medicine and prompt attention. Without this, they grow more and more sensitive. Our spiritual sore thumbs need treatment too. Without it, they only get worse and worse. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Kate. I'm four. This is the Virtual Bible Study. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The Virtual Bible Study continues. We're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Check it out and uh, let us hear from you. We've got some questions from Mike here. We appreciate Mike uh, for sending these questions in. And we don't, want our, don't want our tone to come across the wrong way. And we don't want to we don't want to accuse Mike of something that he's not arguing for here. So we want to be careful of that. Okay. A couple other points that he makes. He said, you also said that your concern about singing instruments is that playing the instruments constitutes a second act that is done in addition to singing. That is true. Uh, Singing with instrumental accompaniment is a different act than just singing. He says, here are some other actions we take while singing that should, by your logic, also be of concern. Standing, sitting, humming, reading, foot tapping, and so forth. None of these are mentioned, only singing. Well... I drew an X mark through humming. Humming is a different kind of music. We we uh, we would oppose humming. Nobody hums here anyway. Uh, so humming is out. But standing, sitting, reading, foot tapping, all of those things don't change the act of singing. We're just singing, right? And so uh, again, it's still the same act. Nothing has changed. It's not an additional act. He says, similarly, there are actions that we take during the Lord's Supper that should be concerning as they are not mentioned along with the partaking. Things like walking up and down the aisle to pass the trays, praying silently after the prayer of thanksgiving has been given. These things aren't mentioned, but they seem to be allowed as they facilitate the passing of the emblems and the thoughtful thanksgiving and contemplation of the supper. Well, again, it's all the same act. We haven't changed the act. And those are those are necessary things. Yeah, uh, uh, the praying... He says it's not mentioned. I actually think that praying silently after after the prayer of thanksgiving and blessing has been given, I think that that is implied in do this in remembrance of me. Let a man consider himself, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, so let him partake. Uh, and so the, the contemplative, self-contemplative things, including prayer, certainly included. It's all the same act. None of the things you mentioned, they've changed the act of taking the Lord's Supper. Now, I'll tell you what would change the act. What if we added peanut butter and jelly to the bread? Well, it's still bread. It's still bread and fruit of the vine. We're just adding something else. Would you agree? Could we add peanut butter and jelly to the bread? Everybody's going to say no. Well, 
that's the, the, your objection to that would be the same objection to adding instruments to the singing. It's not authorized. It changes it. It makes it a different act. That's right. All right. Let's read. Let's okay. read. Uh, Kent, Kent says obtaining pitch is not parallel to using a mechanical instrument and music, a musical musical instrument in worship and singing for two reasons. Music is properly defined as a succession of notes. Pitch is not a succession of tones. It is that which from which tones come. Uh, when a, the pitch is obtained, the means that is used to obtain the pitch becomes silent, and then the a cappella singing begins. The stake illustration breaks down and is not parallel for one simple reason. It is presupposed that there is going to be more than one food item in this birthday meal. Several years ago, I had a Christian church preacher to attempt to argue the same in the same manner by stating that McDonald's always included hamburger buns without specific instruction. That parallel also is a faulty objection upon the basis that it is correctly presupposed that McDonald's engages in the sales of sandwiches, not just hamburger patties only. In New Testament worship, God is specific in authorizing only that of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Also, Mike includes additional items such as building, standing, reading, passing the communion trays, etc. What he has done is to confuse incidentals with that which is essential. We can set or stand or set and still do only that which is authorized, namely sing. When we add an unauthorized element, we become guilty of sin. Partaking of unleavened bread and fruit of the vine constitutes the elements uh, that are authorized in Lord's Supper. Using communion trays does not change the divine requirement and expedites that which is authorized. Mechanical instrumental music offered in worship to God would be like adding donuts and coffee to the Lord's Supper and would be just as sinful. And no, I would not divorce my wife over a birthday dinner. The New Testament authorizes divorce for only one reason, fornication by the guilty partner, Matthew 5, 32, yeah. 99. I think, I think Mike was being facetious about that, yeah. obviously. But, yeah, he was, uh, it, was, it was. It was intended as a joke. Yeah. But, again, I think the, 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 the real reason why that analogy breaks down, although I was very intrigued by it, I think the real reason it breaks down is, is because it is, is based on the assumption that my relationship with my wife is the same as, as God's relationship with me, and it's not. Now, I'd also I'd like to ask Mike. Um, in arguing this, you're arguing for music that accompanies singing. What do you say about music that does not accompany singing? You know, that's always been a point that I uh, that I think really makes this stand out. In almost every place where they use instrumental music in worship, there are instrumental solos. Maybe while the Lord's Supper is being passed. I mean, uh, I, and I don't know so much about this contemporary Christian music kind of thing and this praise teams and all of that. But I know traditionally with the organs in churches, there are a lot of times when the organ would just play and nobody was singing. Mm-hmm. And so that clearly shows it was a separate act. Okay. All right, we got to move on, Jacob. Yep. We're not going to get these other questions. All right. Um, we, got a, we got a question from Nikki. It has several parts to it. Uh, he said, she says, in, so far as the order in which authorized acts are to take place in the worship assembly. Oh, wait a minute. That's, that, I'm reading, I'm reading Kent's answer. And thanks to Mike the for the questions again. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, for yeah that. thanks, Mike. Very good. Here's Nikki's question. He said, she said, I would like to ask if, is it wrong for unfaithful members of the church to work the communion and offering table? And then later she says, also, is it wrong for unfaithful members to teach Sunday school and Bible classes? <laughs> Wouldn't that fall under church discipline? 
And she says, maybe that's a problem of leadership. I, I would definitely say it's a problem of leadership. And, you know, you have enough trouble getting the faithful ones to teach the Sunday school Bible, and Bible <laughs> classes, so I don't know. Maybe. Well, but, I mean, I think I think the answers to the questions are just so straightforward. Yeah, yeah. You, if they're unfaithful members and they want to serve at the Lord's Supper, then let's sit down and talk about, I mean, if, if it's important to you to serve at the Lord's table... Why is it not important for you to be a faithful member of the Lord's church? And if there's some issue that you haven't resolved, let's let's resolve that. We're not going to the question of can you serve at the Lord's table until we know that you've addressed this issue in your life. Uh, so I, I do think it would be wrong. It would just have things completely out of order. But, you know, that's, it's not that far-fetched because I have known instances where people would say something well, so and so's not not they're not very they're not doing very well they're not they're not being strong as Christian. Uh, maybe if we use them more mm. in the services, there will be an encouragement to them to do better in their private life. Mm. That's just a mistake. But so I don't think Nikki's question is that far out of bounds. I mean, I think I've known of instances where they did that sort of thing. So I would say absolutely wrong to use unfaithful members of the church to serve the Lord's Supper, or t- certainly. I absolutely do not want unfaithful members of the church teaching Bible class. I don't want them teaching my kids. I don't want them teaching me. If they can't get their own act together, then they don't have any place to be teaching. And we'd look at all the the false teachers and the instructions and warning against false teachers. You don't want somebody unfaithful teaching. Well, you know, Paul told Titus, who was busy out teaching the gospel, Paul told Titus uh, in Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 8, Verse 7, show thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to save you. Paul told Timothy, you get, you get yourself right first, and then you think about teaching others. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 16, take, take heed to thyself. And unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself. And then here, the first priority, take care of yourself. Take heed to yourself. So all of that would go to address address Nikki's good question. Thank you, Nikki. Now, she also asked, would you say that it's, uh, oh, oh, does it matter if the congregation does the Lord's Supper and giving before the invitation is given? And then she says, would that be a case of not lining up with First Corinthians eleven twenty eight, and I don't really. I tried to figure out the connection to First Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Uh, that simply says there that a man is to examine himself and so eat of that bread and drink of that cup. First so, they, so maybe the invitation is where you examine yourself and then you eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. Maybe, m- maybe, but I I don't see that connection. In, in other words. Uh, or maybe it's you. You need to give someone the opportunity to get themselves their life right before they partake of the Lord's Supper. I don't know. I'm just not sure where that question is coming from. I know churches that do it that way, that have the Lord's Supper and giving before the sermon is preached. Uh, I don't. The, the, to my understanding, there's no specified order in the New Testament. Uh, in other words, this act of worship has to come before that act of worship. Um, I, I I don't see it, Nikki. I. I Personally, I don't see a problem with that. Now, I would say here we do it the other way. We have preaching first, and then the Lord's Supper and giving after. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I can't figure out 
anything in the New Testament that would specify a required order. To the question, Kent says, in far, insofar as the order in which authorized acts are to take place in the worship service, none is there is none. While on the first day of the week there must be a coming together in the assembly and acts offered unto God, such as instruction from the scriptures, prayer, singing, giving, as we've been prospered in observance of the Lord's Supper, God has left the exact time of the worship assembly on the first day of the week to that of human judgment, as well as the arrangement and or the order of occurrence as to when the items of worship are offered to God. 1 Corinthians 11.28 is a very important verse of Scripture that we need to obey. However, time, as it relates to order of arrangement, is not part of the equation. It is indeed wrong to use unfaithful brethren in leadership roles, either in Bible class teaching or in the worship assemblies. In situations where no elders have been appointed in a local church, all the faithful men need to make sure that all things are being conducted according to the New Testament pattern. Yeah, I would agree with Ken on thank that. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. And thank you, Nikki, for the question. All right. Uh, let's grab a break. We've got questions, a question from David and a question from Fred, a couple questions from Fred when we come back. All right. Some questions like, why did Jesus have to die before he could send the Holy Spirit? And could a woman baptize anyone? And what about unbaptized boys helping in the worship service? We're going to get these questions and hopefully take your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. Hello, everyone. I'm Wade Shelton, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you're like me, you've probably heard a lot of rumors about what the Church of Christ is all about. Regardless of what the rumors you may have heard, let me just quickly tell you what we are about. The College View Church of Christ is simply a group of Christians that is committed to doing everything that God has commanded us in exactly the way that he commanded us to do it. So we just simply open our Bibles and study them to determine what God has commanded us to do, and then we try to do it. It's just really that simple. Are you interested in being part of a group of people who have this approach to serving God? If so, I hope you will join me and my family as we worship God with the College View Church of Christ this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. In over one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. 22% of men say that they've cheated and 14% of women admit to cheating. People who have cheated before are 350% more likely to cheat again. That information is via trustified.info. The Word of God says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. We're back on the program, going to the top of the hour with a couple questions from David and Fred to wrap us up tonight. Okay, so David asked the question, why did Jesus have to die in order to send the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm, he didn't uh, show, uh, specify a scriptural reference, but I think he must almost certainly be referring to John chapter 16. Uh, he said in John chapter 16, verse 17, he's speaking to his apostles. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now he had already he he had already identified the Comforter as being the Holy Ghost back in chapter fourteen verse twenty six the Comforter which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you so I'm sure that's what David has in in mind that's the gist of his question there why did Jesus have to die though in order for the Holy Ghost to come I think my answer to that is going to be there was a progression of things that were to happen 
as God's eternal plan unfolded. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says that God had an eternal plan in mind. And that internal, eternal plan necessitated a perfect sacrifice for sin. So the, the, the sacrifice for sin had to, that's why Jesus died. Jesus died to provide the sacrifice for sin. Then the apostles were inspired, have, that having been accomplished, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles to inspire them to preach the word to to explain to people this new plan for redemption and salvation that God had made available through Jesus Christ. So it was a natural progression. It was a necessary progression. Jesus had to die. If he hadn't died, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have had any work to do because the plan was falling apart. Jesus had to die first. Then the Spirit come to reveal the information about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think part of the answer, too, is in verse 12 of uh, chapter 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus could have just told them everything that the Spirit was going to tell them. In fact, he says in verse 13, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it unto you. So the Spirit, Jesus could have told the disciples everything the Spirit was going to tell them. But he couldn't write them because they couldn't bear it. They wouldn't have made sense. It wouldn't have worked. And so the Spirit had to come after Jesus was gone when there was they had a better understanding of how this was all going to work together. So I think uh, Kent has effectively the same answer. He said Christ had to die in order to send the Holy Spirit for one reason. The New Testament scheme had to become the, the New Testament scheme had to become operative in order for the Holy Spirit to provide such revelation of information and inspire individuals to deliver such to humanity. Right. I think that's exactly right. All right, thanks. So that's an interesting question. I don't know. You know, it's always interesting to me when someone comes up with a question that we haven't heard before, because in 13 plus years. Of the virtual Bible say we've heard lots of questions. We've dealt a lot with subjects. David has a question that I don't think we ever got before. We right. haven't dealt with that. Okay. Very good question. Yeah, thanks, David. And then finally, Fred. we got a couple of questions from Fred. We're actually going to get these all in tonight, Jacob. Okay. Fred asked, asked two questions. First, he says, if or when would it be permissible for a woman to baptize anyone? All right. So... We know that women have a limited role in in the church when it comes to their relationship with men. Uh, Paul said in First uh, Timothy chapter two, First Timothy chapter. Let me get there, in my Bible. Chapter two, two, verse eleven. Verse eleven. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So we know that women have a a a, a a, a role, a place, and they are to be in submission to men. I think that's all understood. That being the case, in normal circumstance, I think we would, to apply the principle, we would say, well, the men are going to do the teaching, they're going to do the baptizing, they're going to take the leading role in, in, in all normal circumstances. I don't, I don't, he asked, if or when would it be permissible? Well, I don't think it, it would be considered permissible just on the basis of the women's sub, submissive role to men. Uh, I don't think that it would be permissible under normal circumstances at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches. It's not permitted to them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. This seems real straightforward. It's so straightforward that we're befuddled why, in the denominational world, they think women can be preachers. I mean, it's, it's just stunning that you could read those plain statements and, and suggest women could be preachers today. Now, having said that, I think I can describe a scenario where women could baptize. Because there are no scripturally stated qualifications of baptizers. There's none. There's not any. It's not about the one doing the baptizing. It's about the one being baptized as he submits his will to the will of the Father. So there's a shipwreck. And the only survivors are five women who end up on a deserted island. They end up on a deserted island, but they have a Bible. They, They read their Bible. They find out from their Bible that you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. Could... One of the women baptized the other women and vice versa. My argument is I think they could because there's not any qualified. In other words, in that, they certainly wouldn't be taking a leading role over men in that situation. And so I would say, I mean, but again, hypothetical situations don't prove anything. That would be an extremely rare case. That's certainly not a normal circumstance at all. I tell you what, and I've said this before in the virtual Bible study, and sometimes people really strongly disagree. I think a non-Christian could baptize you. So you end up, Kyle, you and you and me end up on the desert island, just you and me, just the two of us. We're not Christians, but we got a Bible, and we read our Bibles, and we realize we ought to be baptized for mission. There's plenty of water because we're on a we're on an island. We're surrounded by water, but there's no Christians here to baptize us. I think under normal circumstances, you'd want a Christian to baptize you. But in this case, there are no Christians there. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to draw straws or flip a coin or something. I'm going to baptize you first, or, or you're going to baptize me first. But the first one who baptizes is being baptized by somebody who's not a Christian. Uh, I, don't, I think you could do that. Yeah. In other words, there's no qualifier for the baptizer. Uh, if, if So I want to be baptized. But this guy who baptized me, I don't know anything about him. He says he's a Christian, but he might be lying about that. So I'm baptized, but it turns out the guy who baptized me and claimed he was a faithful Christian was actually a liar and a deceiver. Am I lost because he was not a right person? No. I think God's wisdom would was it is certainly seen in that he wouldn't put uh, some such roadblock in the way of an eternal salvation of a soul. I think we should make a uh, motion that there be no more desert island scenarios on the virtual Bible. No more desert. Okay. Well, okay. No, but uh, I think the one question we have to ask is, is this a position of authority, baptizing someone? So if this woman baptizes the man, is she in a position of authority over him? I don't think it is. I don't know that that's the case. But again, I I think just because we want to be certain in such matters, we wouldn't wouldn't do it that way. All right. Um, So... Here's what Kent says. The validity of New Testament baptism does not depend on the individual who administers such. If such was essential, one out of necessity would be required to trace in an unbroken chain exactly. of succession one baptism all the way back to the day. Of yeah, now, get that. Get, get what Kent's saying there. So 
I baptized you, Jacob, and if your salvation is dependent upon me being properly baptized, then I would have to prove that the guy who baptized me had a right to do so. And then you'd have, as Kent says, you'd have to be able to construct an unbroken chain all the way back to the apostles. Impossible. Interesting point here. He says mm-hmm. such a doctrine would make the concept of restoring the New Testament church an impossibility in an area where the church of the Lord did not exist. Notice this. It would also deny what the Lord affirmed in Luke 8, verse 11, about the seed of the kingdom being the word of God. In that case, the seed of the kingdom would also be the word of God and this guy who had a qualified baptizer apostolic succession yeah. from or whatever you want to call it. Uh, is it possible for a woman to be guilty of a sin in baptizing a man? It would be if she forced her way into a given situation and sought to usurp authority or exercise dominion over uh, another man in violation of 1 Timothy 2.12. However, even in a scenario such as this, such would not mean that the individual being baptized was guilty of sin or wrongdoing. So he said even the person being baptized would be okay in that situation. But if he had been taught the truth and was obtained from the heart of the gospel of Christ, a heart, the gospel of Christ, he would only be doing what God required of him. I can certainly visualize in my thinking in remote situations where a married couple might be the only ones involved in such a setting where only they could baptize one another. That's Kent real close to a desert island uh, oh, uh, yeah, scenario. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Stephen answers Fred. He's a little stronger on this, but I'm not, I'm not going to disagree too strongly with him either. He says, uh, as to Fred's question pertaining to women baptizing, Justin the Martyr addressed that topic in his treatise on baptism. I think most all of our listeners know Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, an uninspired man, but who wrote and revealed a lot of the thinking of early Christians, a well-known early church writer, Justin Martyr. Uh, he says his treatise on baptism, number 310, written prior to 163 A.D., so this is very early, the 2nd century A.D., quote, But if those writings are wrongfully called Acts of Paul, defend the example of Thesia as a license for women to teach and baptize, let them know that in Asia the presbyter who composed that writing, as if he were augmenting Paul's fame from his own, after having been convicted and having pleaded that he did it out of love for Paul, was removed from his office. For how could it seem credible that he who did not permit women even to learn in a formal manner would grant to a female the power of teaching and baptizing? Let them be silent, he says, and at home consult their own husband. It appears that the guiding principles of the restoration movement have been lost to this generation. We speak where the Bible speaks. We remain silent where the Bible is silent. We do Bible things in Bible ways. We call Bible things by Bible names. No, uh, no not another man... Not another man-made creed, but good sound exegesis. Uh, so it's interesting. This is not a question that hasn't been heard of before because, although it's a little bit uh, strange grammar because it's so old, this 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 reference from Justin Martyr's uh, writings indicate that some were sug- apparently suggesting that, and he says, uh, and the response was, how could it be possible under the restriction, basically, you know, what we said, under the restrictions that are placed upon women, how could you even conceive of such thing? I think you could only conceive of it in, in extremely rare circumstances where there was not a violation of the principle of women being in subjection to men. Okay. All right. That would be really the only principle that would guide that, right? right. The, the only thing that we have is that you can't, she can't be in a position of authority over a man. Exactly right. All right. Now we got but I do more. think it, I, I would stress again, uh, 
the New Testament provides absolutely no qualification, necessary qualifications of a baptizer. One more question from Fred. We can't leave this last oh, one I out. I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. Go ahead. Your thoughts on using young, unbaptized boys, 12-ish. I don't know if that's 12 boy, 12-ish boys or they're no, 12-ish years they're old. They're 12-ish years old. For leading parts of a Sunday evening worship service, such as Bible reading, song leading, or communion. I think I've known of instances where people did that sort of thing. My reaction to that is going to be, I think it's, at the minimum, it's unwise because you're setting a precedent that others will be willing to take further at some point in the future. Uh, I, I think that unbaptized, well, the, 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 the thinking is typically that unbaptized boys of that age are still innocent uh, and therefore they should be allowed to participate. Uh, let's just, let's just play it safe and say, we're not going to do that because there's, uh, uh, there's, it, it sets a precedent that we don't want to follow. So you're going to say no on that? Uh, I'm going to say no, but I, you're not I going get, to be dogmatic about it. I don't know where I would go to Scripture and, and say, you know, uh, because the question, the follow-up question could be thrown up. Can, can unbaptized boys of 12 years old, can they sing in the worship service when we all sing? Yeah, they can sing. They do sing. Can they lead singing then? If they can sing, can they lead singing? Well, that's a different question. And there's a, there's more implied in leading in the singing than just in singing. And so I would say, uh, f- for all logical reasons, let's don't do that. Some comments from Jeff in the chat room tonight. We have uh, not gotten to those uh, talking about the singing. He says, the position of the body in prayer and singing shouldn't matter, providing it's decently in order. 1 Corinthians 14.40, as for foot tapping, as long as you aren't making it part of the worship, there's really nothing wrong with it. For some of us, foot tapping is a nervous twitch type thing. It's also a way some people keep tempo. Jeff says, I think some think it would, uh, this is talking about the order of services. I think some think the Lord's Supper should be taken, uh, partaken of after the invitation, as there may be some who aren't Christians who would obey the gospel at that time, and they wouldn't have the opportunity to partake with the members as a member at that time, so and that's, that's, a, that's a, a that's a, a worthy consideration. Of yeah, yep. I think that's a worthy consideration. All right, so good comments. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for those and for listening tonight. Yeah, Kyle, any thoughts from your side of the board tonight? I haven't l- looked in your direction yeah, much tonight. I think there's some really good questions. I think this is what this kind of program is for. So I think it's the people who have these kind of questions who just. Whatever your curiosity is about the Bible, this is some really good questions and some odd questions. So Kyle really says, different. bring it on. It is. Yeah. Bring us we some, need more some more questions. More programs like All that. Right. So good but thing. Jacob says, no more deserted islands. Yeah, scenarios. as long as there aren't deserted island questions, we're good for them. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kyle, for being here. That's good to be here. Yeah, Dad, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. I hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. I hope you make, uh, make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again. 
Again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.